Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Carl. Good to talk to you. Welcome back to A Life in Biography. Delighted to be here. I hope the leaf blowers in the neighborhood don't cause us any. That may be not, not your bird song, but we have, we have other background. Noise. Yeah. Well, I'm inside, so unless there's a huge noise, nothing's going to be heard on my end. <laughs> um, we've done a podcast before. But we can't count on people listening to this one, uh, remembering that one or having listened to it. So maybe we should begin again by your introducing yourself and explaining what you're doing here. Well, I have I wear a number of hats, as you know, and I guess I would call myself a, a somewhat reluctant biographer now. Um, but I, I'm a writer and a publisher. Before I became a publisher, I worked for Valerie Elliott in London. I started my publishing career in London in scientific publishing. I then worked for Valerie Elliott, the, the wife, the widow then of the poet T.S. Eliot, um, as a part-time job um, while I was trying to, you know, I was pitching my own books. And I, I, while I was with Valerie, I sold my first book proposal for an environmental book. And that launched me on a whole new career. So that was an early part of my life. But um, the, the Elliot story has just followed me for years <laughs> and years and years. I couldn't get away from it. I meant to. Um, even here, I live now, I came 25 years ago to a small town in Western Massachusetts. And within a month of moving here, I heard about a woman who had worked, who had been uh, T.S. Eliot's secretary before Valerie in the 1940s. And she too ended up in this one little town in Western Massachusetts. And I met her and uh, she basically adopted me. She became my aunt. She sort of tried to run my life as best she could for years until she died. Um, and then in 2005, prompted by uh, a friend in California, I, I wrote an article about Valerie for, and it was published in the Guardian Review, um, which was their weekly literary magazine. And as the cover story, and um I thought that would be the end of things. It was considered controversial because the Elliott estate, as we will talk about, is very private. Um, and I was considered a, a huge breach for me to, to write anything about Valerie. Um, but I did it and I thought, well, that's done now and I can pursue my, uh, you know, the rest of my life. But then people started contacting me and more stories kept coming. So one, anyway, now I'm writing a, a uh, going to write Valerie's biography, but you know we're here today to talk about uh, uh, the first biographer of T.S. Eliot, who ran into her rather often in the course of his efforts. Yes, yes, the great Tom is the book is titled by T.S. Matthews. Um, tell us a little bit about how this you 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 published a, a book that was. I suppose never meant to be published or Matthews wanted to publish it, but his agent said they couldn't sell it. Yes, that that's right. Um, T.S. Matthews was an American. I, I do think this, you and I will today should talk a bit about the issue of, of British and American perspectives. And there, there's definitely some touchiness um, 
about Americans writing on British subjects. And I knew yes. when I worked for Valerie, I was very conscious. I, I thought it was really funny. Americans would claim her hu husband, her late husband, T.S. Eliot, as American. And the British very much considered him theirs. He's, you know, I describe him as Anglo-American. He's was from St. Louis. He was, uh, but he became, um, you know, middle age, he became a British citizen and tried to be really more English than the English. Um, but but one of the, the, the problems that the first biographer of Eliot, T.S. Matthews, had is that he was American, although also a kind of Anglo-American. Um, his book was commissioned by an American publishing company. Um, and, and the British are still, I, I, I know this from even a recent conversation, the British are still touchy about Americans' commentary on Eliot. Um, but he, he was asked to, to write a book that eventually became um, published as Great Tom, at, Great Tom being the bells, the, at, um, the bell at, at Christchurch College in Oxford, which I'm not sure Americans would know. Um, but he, he found it so difficult and so frustrating to get the information that he felt he needed. And he really got ticked off about the way um, both both Valerie Elliott, the widow, the young widow, and and the the folks at Faber and Faber, the publishing company that T. S. Eliot was involved in for decades, um, they they were unhelpful, and they and and Valerie in some way communicated with anyone she could think of not to speak to him. So he. He at some at, at one point after a year or a year and a half he he thought he wouldn't be able to write the book. Uh, he thought it would he, it would be impossible to write a satisfactory biography, and he was a journalist and a, a writer of other books on other topics. And he thought, well, maybe he could turn the story of his detective quest, um, his investigation into. Um, a book in itself. So he started to do, I mean, you've done, you've written so many biographies, Carl, you know, there is a story to every book, isn't there? There is, there's a backstory. Yeah. Um, and you have written those, you've written them after the fact, I think, using notes. Um, yeah, the only exception is A Private Life of Michael Foote, where I'm very much a character in the book. That's very hard for a biographer to do because people, if they want to read about T.S. Eliot, they don't want to read about Carl Rollison. Right. And so, same thing with Michael Foote, but I called it A Private Life of Michael Foote, and it was about getting him to talk about his life and his marriage and so on. So I felt sort of permission to do that. Yeah, so that was that was quite um, a, a different thing. It's actually come up now that I'm writing have finally decided I'm going to have to write a biography of Valerie, you know, the question of how much I sh should have, my voice should be there simply because I did know her, yeah. um, you know, know, knew her quite well, actually, and worked closely with her. Well, that makes a huge difference. You know, it's like Boswell and Johnson. Uh, yes. I think it gives you a certain license to do that. Yeah, it would, as someone said, it would be weird if I didn't 
if yeah. I wasn't there. But figuring out exactly how to do it well is is tricky. And in fact, T.S. Matthews knew um, T.S. Eliot, knew Tom Eliot, and had 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 dinner at the Eliot's um, flat in Kensington where I worked. Um, but as he said, he didn't know him well. He he wasn't on a first name basis with him, which I thought was interesting. I mean, nowadays we we sort of lost track of that, that you could have go to someone's home for dinner, but not be on a first name basis. Yes. Um, but Matthews decided that he would actually, while continuing to gather information, he would c compile the material, uh, sorry, the, the, the correspondence, his, his thoughts into a really quite comprehensive journal. So it would be what he did, what happened to him about meetings. And also he typed in letters he sent, sometimes letters he composed and didn't send, prob probably wisely. <laughs> um, and then the letters he received. So we have, he, he sort of created for us a, a kind of digest, a sort of distilled version of what are really a, a, a very extensive archive at Princeton. So instead of having to go to Princeton and kind of root through all this massive stuff, you actually get a pretty good sense of what he dealt with. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. In your edition of, of, of Great Tom, um, Matthews, we hear Matthews's voice all the time. Yeah. Which is what you don't get in the same way anyway in his biography of T.S. Matthews. And the other thing I want to say, which is what I emphasized in my New York Sun review, um, people can read, say, uh, Keepers of the Flame, um, Ian Hamilton's book. Yes. Um, Michael Milgate wrote a book called Testamentary Acts. Uh, also about literary estates and the problems biographers have. But what's um, almost unique about your book is when someone reads um, the book, it's like going, as you've already said, really, it's like going into the archive. Uh, in other words, it's not some biographer simply telling you, well, I had a hard time or this happened and that happened. Uh, as I say, we get the biographer's voice and we get, you know, the responses from people who are responding to the biographer. Yes. So you're right there with him as he gets, you know, he, I've just received a letter from, or I've just <laughs> been talking to, um, and he gets, you know, ticked off or he'll have, uh, you know, there'll be a discovery or they'll, you know, he will think he's got found something great and it turns out to be a bit of a dud. So you 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 do feel like you're on the hunt with him. And certainly um, at some points, well, I in particular, because I have dealt with some of the same institutions. Yeah. And and I I've read it and I've thought that's why I was so fascinated. Um, you know, it. I didn't find this. I will say that the book that we have turned, or the manuscript we've turned into Writing Great Tom, which is the subtitle is T.S. Eliot and the Keepers of the Flame, um, was, it was just, well, the papers of T.S. Matthews were discovered by a biographer named Sarah Fitzpatrick, Sarah, Sarah Fitzgerald. Um, 
And Sarah was just rooting around. She's she's working on a biography of Emily Hale, one of the women who Elliot was in love with. And she ha happened, she was looking at the, the Hale papers at, at Princeton, and she just noticed in a footnote to some something, the way one does, you know, the, she noticed that that Matthew's papers were also listed as being at Princeton. And it turned out that there were very substantial um, archive of his papers because he was a journalist and an author for decades. And and he was, as we can see, he kept a lot of material, he kept stuff. Um, so it was there. So this was during the pandemic and, and Sarah let me know because she thought I would be interested. And we got the Princeton Library was fabulous about sending us, you know, scanning things and sending them to us. But at that point we were, there, were, there was like even a folder called Other Women. <laughs> <laughs> which was intriguing yeah um so we looked through the stuff but i decided i'd go down because there's you know once the libraries reopened that was um about 18 months ago in early in the spring of 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 2022 i should say um and i went down and you know so i was going through the the folders and the and and i came across one that had about 300 pages, very fat. And I started to leaf through it and I realized that it was not, not just a few notes about writing the book. It was really the story of writing the book. And then I found the letters that's where he'd actually asked his agent about, um, about writing this book that would be the story of his efforts. Um, and so, so I, you know, I realized what what we had, what I didn't know is that even though it was roughly, you know, piled together in a folder as a manuscript, it was very, 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 very rough. The pages, they were typed pages. You remember when we had typed pages and you just sort of shuffle them around like playing cards. Well, that's what he'd done. So he had a couple different drafts. There were different numbering systems at the top. And, um, I, but I, I scanned it and, um, and then eventually had to print it out and actually shuffle pages. It was like putting a, 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 a puzzle together. Yeah. Um, archaeological. Um, you know, reading lines at the bottom of a page and then later saying, oh, oh, I think I, I think that might, you know, fit. Um, and it's not, I, I didn't manage to, to fit match up absolutely everything but pretty much yeah um, yeah the read the book reads pretty smoothly yeah um so when you consider that it was you know that at, at eventually he decided that he got hold of a couple of important people who had not been told not to speak to him or had ignored anything they'd heard and he was able um to, to gather enough information to, you know, that he felt confident that he could write um, a full biography. And he, he did a very, I mean, I'm now really impressed. I have never heard anyone say a positive word about his biography, though. Yeah. Um, that often happens to the first biographer, especially if the first biographer is unauthorized. Yeah. That, that has happened to me where I've gotten negative and mixed reviews. And partly, uh, I always I feel the reaction of the reviewers is, 
sort of, how dare he? Yes. How has he earned the right to do this? Or as Andrew Wiley said, when my wife and I did the Sontag biography, who are these people? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that clearly there was, it was a, a quite a unified voice from the, the, the British reviewers to, um, it was almost as though they had uh, had been prepped <laughs> to yeah. to to um, to dismiss it and and actually to dismiss really all the books written about Eliot in those early years. Yeah. There's there's something I want to say about T. S. Matthews mm -hmm. uh, because I got to know uh, I never met him, but I got to know about him quite well because he was married to Martha Gellhorn, one of yes, my biographical yes. subjects. And so I had had to learn about him. In fact, when I wrote to him asking for an interview, he sent me back uh, lines from Shakespeare's Macbeth, hence horrible shadow, hence. I tell that <laughs> I tell that I tell that story in my book Confessions of a serial biographer. But the thing about Matthews is he had met uh, T.S. Eliot. Matthews was living in England, and essentially he had always wanted to be a poet, although he had been an editor at time and, and, and never really succeeded as a poet. Um, he, he, he saw himself really in retirement as a kind of English gentleman. Yes. And the fact that, and this is what happens to a lot of biographers, who, who have had very successful careers. A friend of mine, this happened to a friend of mine, Ann Waldron, who did Eudora Welty, and the Welty community essentially shut her out. And she was absolutely shocked that this would happen to her after having written several well-received biographies. Uh, but this is what happens when you take on um, a subject. And if you take on a subject like this in Britain, it's even worse. Um, when I was doing my Rebecca West biography, for example, um, I interviewed Ellen McLean, who was her editor at Macmillan. Uh -huh. But before I could get to Ellen McLean, I had to get to him through my agent, whose name was River Scott, who before he was an agent, was an editor at the London Sunday Telegraph. Uh -huh. And he had to vouch for me. In other words, Ellen called him up and said, who is this guy, Rollison? Why should I talk to him? Yeah. And Rivers had to explain who I was, what I had done, why I was perfectly capable of writing a biography of Rebecca West. He did the same thing, that is, Rivers did the same thing with, with um, Rebecca West's editor at Viking, Gwenda David. And Gwenda David, she did see me, but afterwards she called up and she said, why is this Rollison pestering me? <laughs> I only interviewed her once, you know. What qualification were they looking for? I really puzzle over this. I think you have to earn your dues. The weird thing is the only one permitted to do that kind of biography uh, of especially these British figures, but it's true of, say, figures like Susan Sontag is you had to have been in the inner circle. You had to have paid your dues. You had you had to flatter certain people. Uh, in T.S. Matthews's case, He's, if you if people read your book very carefully, your edition of his uh, book about writing Great Tom, you'll see he starts out um, fairly confident. Yes. He thinks because of who he is and his long residence in England and so on, that he's going to be able sooner or later to crack through to Vivian Elliott. 
and what he doesn't realize again is all that doesn't matter because he didn't go and ask her permission. I don't think you need permission to write a biography of anybody. But lots of people, especially in England, do. And therefore, the very fact that whatever, you know, and he had lots of qualifications to write the biography, the very fact that he did not bow down to her was enough. Yes. For her, her not to cooperate. And they really did their best to discourage him. Uh, yeah. Even to the extent of endlessly letting rumors get out that someone else, that they were authorizing someone else, <laughs> which was yeah. not true. That's been done to me too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so I yeah. think I read about that. So, so you know, you're going to be you're you're going to be um, second out the gate. You know, exactly. Um, it's not worth your while. Give it up now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's Martha Galhorn had someone write to me and say, essentially, who are you? Don't you know that there is an authorized biographer? And I knew damn well there wasn't. Yeah. But that was just a ploy to get me to say, oh, dear, you know, I better drop this. And the thing, Matthews, did, he was not, not in Eliot's inner circle, but he had obviously a load of literary connections. Oh, yeah. Connections in common with Eliot. Oh, yeah. Um, and he certainly exerted, made use of his contacts. I mean, I was amused. He 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 did all the, the things that one does. He wrote to common acquaintances. He wrote to, you know, friends of friends and friends who might know someone <laughs> on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah. Um, and he did all this, you know, with type letters. I always think at least I... I can use email or WhatsApp. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you, you mentioned working for, for um, I said Vivian before, I meant Valerie, Valerie Elliott. Um, uh, she probably, ne it would never have occurred to her that someday someone, and you in particular, would write her biography. That no. would never have occurred to her, because if it had occurred to her, she probably would have had you sign a non-disclosure agreement. Yes, I, I suspect that they, uh, once my article was published in The Guardian in 2005, they probably have had people <laughs> sign non-disclosure agreements. Um, and and the thing is that the the thing about working with Valerie that I, I, I you know I've had time I was in I think I was twenty nine when I started working for her. I worked for her for two years and I left and published my first book when I was thirty one and but it was crucial years in her life um, it was you know I actually got her out the door with the only volume of the Elliot letters that she herself managed to complete and edit and see in print. Um, it was a time when her mother died. Various, a lot was going on in her life, but she was also wealthy because of cats. So she was, you know, her life had shifted because of that. There was a lot, it was a really pivotal period and she lacked um, other people to talk to. So she talked to me a lot. Um, and in fact, she kind of unfolded her life or tried to. We were, you see, we were supposed to, the volume we were completing was the first, what was then the first volume of the Elliot letters. So obviously starting with his youth and into <laughs> the twenties. Um, and 
she she would infuriate me some because she wouldn't stick. You know, I became a publisher. I'm someone who likes to just get things done. And I was like that when I was young, too, um, even in those, you know, even though it was really her her book. Um, and and I wanted to get the teens and the, you know, from he was born in 1888. And the, probably the first letter was when he was a teenager. So uh, I wanted to focus there. But she would I would come in one day and after we had coffee and talked for an hour or so, um, she would hand me letters from World War Two or letters from the 1950s. And and I've since then realized that she, what she, the letters she gave me to work on were about periods that she felt were important in her life or in her relationship. Oh, yeah. With yeah. She was showing me, so it was, the, it was a period when he was a, spent a lot of time during the war with the woman who kind of did the matchmaking yeah. Later. So nothing to do with Emily Hale or Mary Trevelyan or any of these <laughs> other people. Very yeah. much to do with Valerie's own story. Yeah. And then the letters after they were married, the not any kind of business letters or anything, but the letters he wrote about his beauty, you know, his beautiful bride. Yeah. Um, so she was unfolding or her own kind of um, narrative of her life to me. Yeah. And you could see how then someone like T.S. Matthews comes on and wants to dig up all this other stuff. Yes. It has nothing to do in a sense with Valerie. Uh, that how is she going to deal with all that? She feels very possessive and, and thrilled and, and uh, uh, so privileged to be yes. with this great poet. And then, you know, T.S. Matthews comes along. Why should she share it with him? Why should really, in a sense, she felt, why should she share it with anyone? With anybody, she, yeah. She really wanted to have complete control of the narrative. Yeah. Um, and you've seen this all the time. People, and it's understandable. People want to oh, it is, yeah. the narrative of their life. But he had you know, they were married for the last eight years of his life. They had very little. She was his secretary for seven and a half years before that. But the intimacy was only in the last year or so. Uh, yeah. So he had a, 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 he had a lot of life that she was not part of. Uh, and she ended up trying to control that, which seems yeah. to me a bit of a non-starter. But she yeah. did think that she could and she certainly tried yeah mary hemingway did a bit of that with you know the last the last wife is always an interesting study mm. yeah yeah I, i've always thought you know when I, I still puzzle over this is why did she care so much except that that was her her place in the world her sense of identity came from having captured this man and yeah yeah, my impression is, you know, she made him very happy. And I think that the fact that she could make him very happy, because temperamentally he would, I don't think he'd be described as a very happy man. Yes. Uh, Rebecca West once met them, actually, uh, Valerie and, and T.S. Eliot in Barbados. Uh -huh. uh, and there's a very funny scene that she describes with Eliot. Uh, they're having dinner. 
and she wants to order some wine and he says you know very sort of uh, what the right word is uh, his, in his proper way he says shouldn't we decide what we're going to eat before we order the wine and she said you know there was a bottle with a candle or something on the table uh -huh. and rebecca west says i wanted to pick that thing up and conk him <laughs> I love it. I had never heard that story before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, so Valerie, you know, given that kind of austere uh, and, uh, of course, the, the prestige of T.S. Eliot, me, T.S. Eliot, Sylvia, one of my other subjects, Sylvia Platt, talks about just the, you know, having an audience with T.S. Eliot. Yes. Um, which is interesting because she has a dream about the same time about having an audience with Marilyn Monroe. And what I love about Sylvia Plath is she treats them equally. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, that, that's very telling uh, about her. But getting back to Valerie, uh, I think it makes her so singular. She wasn't just a secretary. Um, she became something much more. Her ambition even though it's been very much cloaked and she certainly didn't um, let and let people know much about it. She clearly was as a young woman and as an older woman, ambitious for, you know, in terms of her work, she wanted yeah. to claim for her, um, her editorial efforts. She wanted to be something. And that was certainly being his wife, but that, she wanted to to make she wanted a role for herself and certainly the fact that um that there were these other women and, and of course the the thing about the other women in particular emily hale is that she was associated with elliot when he was much younger i mean he was frail he was often ill he was certainly not at his best when during the years they were married and and she inspired no great work. And that, I think, was a source of dis yeah. considerable discomfort to her. Yeah. Um, she wasn't so worried. There was another, an English woman um, who was also very keen on Elliot and felt that she was, and he made her feel that she was the most important woman in his life, um, Mary Trevelyan, who looked after him, although not as well as Valerie, and uh, Valerie looked after him very well. Yeah. Um, but but it was the idea that 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 there were, you know, that other people had inspired him and would were associated with his greatest work. Um, and yeah, you know, and of course, for some people, uh, they get a lot of satisfaction at being the gatekeeper. Yes. And I, I think that uh, that's, that's part of what's at, at work here. Um, I'm not going to let you off the hook, though. You said at the beginning that you're a reluctant biographer. So, <laughs> so we better hear about that. Well, <clears throat> I was thinking, <clears throat> I've sort of been dragged into this. Um, well, as I, said, I know. I know that I've corrupted you. I'll say that. <laughs> yes, yes. You you are definitely part of the problem here, but you know I'm I'm going to just get it done and 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 as I said before, I'll put it behind me. <laughs> so that's my hope. But um, Valerie has come to intrigue me. But but here's 
what happened when I first came back to the States and I met, as I said, I met a, a woman who had been Elliot's uh, secretary during the war before Valerie. Her name was Linda Melton and Linda Benson when I knew her. She'd married an American academic and come to the States. Um, and so I heard about her. I thought it was very unlikely that this was actually Elliot's secretary. I met other people who claimed to have some connection with him and who it's, it's made up. Um, but, but she invited me to tea. And so we, we sat in her garden and she clearly was, you know, did know him and, and had known Valerie too, because she, she, you know, she'd left Faber and Faber, the publishing company, but she was still in London and she'd drop in to see friends the way one does. So she knew the young Valerie and the, the, the secretary Valerie. But um, one of the first things Linda said to me that afternoon is she said, you know, someone should really write her biography. <laughs> and I had written a book and was working on another at the time. And I looked at her with horror because I thought she was suggesting that I might do it. And I was like, no way. And then she said, she sort of gazes off into the distance and she said, someone like Michael Holwood, you know, she clearly would not think that I yeah. would ever um, be suitable. I was a young woman. I, I was young and I was a woman. Yeah. And it was American. Yep. Um, I definitely didn't have the stature to do something like that. Um, but I, I, I do think, I wonder what she would think now. She'd probably still think I shouldn't do it. Um, but, so how do you feel now about doing it? Well, I feel really great because my, my plan has been up till now to use El, uh, Valerie's story in combination with the uh, another um, wife and widow I knew and to contra to talk about the way women's lives evolved in the 20th century, the women's attraction to powerful men. But Valerie's story was overwhelming it because Valerie's story is very little known. There's very little written about her in the biographies, most of T.S. Eliot, most of the biographers treat her as of really little account. She's yeah. the, 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 the blonde secretary, and then she's the, the guardian. But she, as an individual, is almost uh, faceless. Yeah. Um, and, and I knew her, so I knew there was more to her than that. But what it's turned out is that almost everything in these other biographies is wrong, mm. actually wrong, because uh, it's all based, the only information that exists about Valerie's early life comes from a couple of interviews that she gave. Uh -huh. And so they only come from her. Yeah. And I assumed, you know, people assume that T.S. Eliot always told the truth, and then they assume that Valerie always told the truth. Well, I assumed that she told the truth, frankly. It didn't occur to me that she would be making stuff up. I didn't see why she would. But um, after she died, I was called by, the, um, by the, the person writing the obituary for the London Times, because I'm only person who's written um you know very in a kind of intimate way yeah about her 
and they wanted to know if the secrets would, it's always been the case. What secrets are being kept? Why is Elliot <laughs> Estate, you know, not releasing things and not giving permission and taking so long with things? It must be, you know, they're deep, dark secrets, dirty laundry. And so they called to, you know, quoted me about that. And, you know, I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'll write something else about Valerie because it's been interesting to see things unfold. And a lot of people had contacted me. You know, once The Guardian put that article online, I had people contacting me with their Valerie stories. So, I, you know, I kind of started to amass material. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'll poke around. I'll talk to a few people. I'll see maybe there's some of her old people she worked with, like, you know, who knew her, like, as Linda had. Um, so I managed to, I've interviewed dozens of, of people who had never been spoken to about Valerie. Yeah. She must've had a lot of contacts. Right. Um, and, and almost all the anecdotes that people about her, all the stories she told about where she worked and when she did things, it's pretty much all inaccurate. Mm. Um, the the dates don't match. I mean, her. Yeah. The, the, she, but, but Valerie, what we'll say about Valerie is that she had a great. She was a raconteur. Mm. She made up her own story, and it's quite a good one. She also came up with the the initial idea that became the song "Memory" in in Cats. Oh. She she had a gift for. Um, for storytelling um and it's a bit daunting for a biographer because you really would like some facts rather than just mm -hmm. her stories but she was very insecure about her past her she came from a just a very a, a middle class family um a kind of i think of her family as being like the um the 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 townspeople in middlemarch you know, the good, sure. solid middle class people, not the county, not the gentry. Yeah. Um, but the civic leaders and so forth. That's that's what her family was like. But Elliot's friends were of a much higher status in British society and in American society. And they definitely looked down on her. And she was deeply conscious of that. She was clearly mm. conscious of it when I knew her. Well, you know what? T.S. Matthews had no idea who he was dealing with. Yeah. <laughs> you yes. know, to hear you talk about her, you know, he thought he could sail in there and uh, if, for the reasons we've explained, but also, uh, you know, uh, she's got a story to tell. She doesn't want somebody else to tell it. And she does, she knows enough about those other women to know... I, it was, you know, we have to give T.S. Matthews a lot of credit, and it's unfortunate that the today's biographers of Eliot don't give him credit for, for the discoveries he made. They wouldn't have, Lyndall Gordon would not have been able to talk to yeah. the L. Smith if Matthews hadn't figured out th about Emily Hale and tracked That's right. him down. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When my wife and I did our Sontag biography, there were things that, that are in that book that, that gave other interviewers, let alone a later biographer, the permission to ask, ask certain things. Yeah. To know about certain things. Yeah. Uh, and he, um, he 
um, quite remarkably. It wasn't, it's, it's interesting to me because he wasn't looking for scandal. He wasn't looking for no. other women. He, he, as he said at the end, he was really trying to understand Elliot's character. Elliot was a hard person to kind of get hold of. Yeah. Um, but he ended up discovering these women. And at first he thought it was Elliot's first wife, Vivian. Um, and he thought that was the, the, the secret right. being kept. And, and then, of course, what happened, and this still is happening. I've had the same thing with the Bodleian Library at Oxford. They don't let you see stuff. And yeah. they say, this has been going on for years, that, um, that Vivian, who had been long separated from her husband when she died in 1947, she left her papers to the Bodleian. Um, but, but Valerie Elliott, um, who I, I thought was pretty relaxed about his long dead first wife, um, she wanted to keep, she controlled access to those. And Matthews really had to fight to get, um, to take a look at them. And he, he really, dis and he talked to, to Vivian's brother at, at length, entertained him and talked to him at length. Um, so that was, you know, his first suspicion was just that this, the sad, rather tragic early marriage was the secret. But then he, by chance, um, learned that there were over 1,100 letters written by T.S. Eliot um, that had been um, given to Princeton by a woman called, an American woman called Emily Hale. And that's, you know, what's kind of led to this. But no, Eliot really kept Emily Hale's secret from almost everyone. Yeah. And, Very interesting. And, and, and it was Matthews who first realized that she must be much more important, was not just a casual friend or correspondent, but was someone important. Yeah. Um, now, Valerie knew about these letters but she certainly didn't want anyone else to know about them. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was um, a a problem. It was a and and that's what you know. She didn't want people poking around. I suppose if she had had um, an authorized biographer, she, there was a document, and this is what she refers to frequently. You see it frequently in our you know, the manuscript we've now published is that she says, and other people say that, that T.S. Eliot left a memorandum with his will um, saying that, that she should not um, assist in the work of any biographer, that he didn't want his personal life looked at. Um, he had said other things earlier in life and, and, um, and Matthews quotes those frequently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There certainly was a time when Elliot felt differently about biography and certainly saw a justification for it. So what should I have asked you that I didn't ask you? Anything? No, I think this is good. It's really fun to talk to you. And I do think you um, deserve some credit or blame for my getting into this. <laughs> but, but I'm actually quite excited about it. And, and actually working on writing Great Tom has been very stimulating. Yeah, it should be. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's been great. Well, that's great, Karen. Okay. I'm going to uh, post this yep. podcast yep. and send you a link. Thank you very much. And uh, we will tell the world. Great. 
Great. Thanks. Lots of fun. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye.